Welcome to the Health Fix Podcast, where health junkies get their weekly fix of tips, tools, and techniques to have limitless energy, sharp minds, and fit physiques for life. Hey, health junkies. On this episode of the Health Fix Podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Robert Whitfield, and we're going to be talking about breast implant illness. Dr. Robert Whitfield is a board-certified plastic surgeon with over 26 years of experience. He specializes in breast implant removal surgery, breast implant illness, and advanced cosmetic procedures. He was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, and received his medical degree from the University of Las Vegas School of Medicine. He then completed six years of surgical training, including a plastic surgery residency at Indiana University Medical Center. Now, he is now practicing in Austin, Texas, where he has become renowned for his cosmetic expertise. He is definitely passionate about helping women understand the importance of advocating for your health and understanding that breast implant illness can cause chronic inflammation in the body and it can wreak havoc on your entire immune system. And of course, it can cause a variety of health problems, including imbalanced hormones, loss of libido, difficulty losing weight, and a lowered ability to detox from environmental toxins, heavy metals, and mold. So, Dr. Robert Whitfield has a ton of information for us. Let's introduce you to him so you can learn more about breast implant illness. All right, folks, I got Dr. Rob on today, and we're going to be talking about breast implant illness, something that I've been seeing in my office quite a bit. Folks are asking me questions and also looking for qualified docs that know what's going on in this department. So Dr. Rob, welcome to Health Fix Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. So big thing here, of course, that everyone wants to know when they first find out that a doc is specializing in breast implant illness. How did you come to specialize in this department? Uh, we traditionally in my practice had taken care of breast cancer patients predominantly. So uh, I taught microsurgery for breast reconstruction and for head and neck reconstruction and sarcoma reconstruction for many years. And then I left the academic setting and uh, went to Austin in 2012. And I joined a group practice and basically did the same things. Mm -hmm. And we would always see uh, patients, whether they were cosmetic or breast uh, reconstruction patients with implant related issues. Sometimes they would just come to me specifically for expertise regarding a malposition. So the implants were not at the correct levels or they may have had a capture contracture or they may have had problems with radiation injury or you know, infections or something like that throughout, you know, the, the course of their time with uh, implants, either from breast reconstruction or from cosmetics. And in 2016, I had a patient come who was a, a breast cancer survivor. She had an implant-based reconstruction done in uh, Georgia. And she had retired in Austin and didn't want her reconstruction anymore. She wanted to be flat. And uh, from, uh, you know, time to time, Patients you know, reach that conclusion or that point in their life, and they no longer want a breast reconstruction, and they'll seek you know advice about you know what to do about it, what techniques. And um, we did her workup, and there wasn't anything concerning. Um, totally agreed with her decision to do that. So she had to be taken care of at a hospital. She had an underlying medical condition, so she needed an overnight stay. So I did her case, took out all the capsular material and the old implant material, sent it all off 
to be examined for pathology to make sure there's no recurrent cancer because you obviously want to make sure that in a breast cancer survivor. And then you always look for any signs of infection in the pocket. And on her results of pathology, she had no recurrent cancer, but she had on her microbiology, which looks for bacteria and fungus and mycobacterium, uh, E. coli. And the amount of E. coli she had was consistent with an infection. So she had had an underlying infection this whole time. The only symptoms she really, uh, you know, gave us uh, that was a hit, you know, you know, in retrospect was she had fatigue. But I've taken care of cancer patients since the 90s, and many of them through bone marrow suppression and their therapies have fatigue. So that's a pretty routine, you know, uh, issue for them. So uh, my sister's a breast cancer survivor, and I would have, have been really upset if someone had missed an infection, you know, on my sister. And when I... I went back through all the notes and exams and uh, encounters we had, and, and I couldn't find, you know, anything that would give me a clue about that. So I put her on uh, antibiotic therapy based on what the culture showed and the sensitivity patterns of the culture. And within, uh, you know, two weeks, um, she was doing much better. And at a month follow up, most of her fatigue had had resolved. So she had uh, fatigue due to underlying infection. Mm -hmm. And once that was removed, uh, she obviously did better. And that's all documented. Um, there's no question about it. A, from that point, I believe she put me on a message board uh, uh, through either Facebook or other um, boards. And I started having people self-refer to me to do explants. Uh, and I, you know, having that you know, encounter was very concerning to me because then I didn't really know how to rely on the information we were being faced with because none of it had given me an idea that there was a problem. So if someone came and wanted their um, either breast reconstruction or cosmetic augmentation uh, taken out and, you know, we went through the process with them, you know, I would help them you know, do that. Now, fast forward, I've done probably over 1800 explants for both, you know, predominantly now cosmetic patients, but I just had a cancer patient on yesterday from California, and they've had lots of problems with autoimmune uh, issues and with fatigue and, you know, just all these symptoms of chronic inflammation. So for the audience, so when people uh, ask me what I consider to be breast implant illness, breast implant illness is, you know, to me a very, it's a chronic inflammatory process and it doesn't lend itself easily to a diagnosis. And that's why it's super confusing to providers. So it does have a component where there's a medical device. And in my opinion, it could be a number of devices involved with something like this. It could be a hip, a knee, a breast, a dental, cardiac, you know, spinal implant, whatever. Um, any of those things that are foreign can, can can lend themselves to having biofilm and become a problem for your immune system. But there are always other factors. So we look at folks' genetics because you only have a certain amount of genetic capability to detox. And once you exceed that, you'll have more signs of inflammation. If you're faced over and over again, either through your environment, like where you work or where you sleep or where you, you live, uh, you'll get exposures chemical exposures, depending on uh, the water. You may have things in your water like arsenic. Groundwater can be contaminated with arsenic very routinely. I know where I grew up it was. You can have other problems, heavy metals, 
you certainly can have, and we see a lot of this in Texas, mold exposures. So, I mean, there's a number of things that affect you. Uh, and, and we know the food sources are not getting better. They're getting worse. So glyphosates are typically a problem. Um, and then I look at people's food sensitivities to be, to be frank, you, you, you could be eating and trying to do very well, but if you don't understand certain things that stimulate you, not just gluten and dairy products, but you know, maybe an avocado or something, you, you never know what's going to cause a problem. And then we evaluate everybody's hormones. So like we paint this big, broad picture to figure out systematically what is going on. But to me, it's just rest of the illness is chronic inflammation. The device is one component of it. Sure. Sure. And this is something that, you know, I, I think a lot of patients will see coming into my office and because we're getting more and more traction with folks talking about breast implant illness, it's often the first thought that if they do have implants, they're like, that's got to be it. That's got to be my problem. And, and I'd love for you to kind of speak about how you had just said there, there's more, more factors there. So I guess one of the big things is probably how do we know if someone's suspecting how do we know for sure? What would be the test that you would put them through to look at the actual implant? Is it an ultrasound? Give, give folks a little scoop of like, yes, maybe we might do genetic testing. Maybe we might do the food sensitivity. But if someone's like, do I have something going on with my breast implants? What would be the first thing some, you would do to kind of rule it out or or make it as a possibility? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, on physical exam, people can have no findings. And then on MRI, ultrasound, mammogram, they can have no findings. So there's not a specific diagnostic study that's going to help you say someone has that problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't worry about them anymore. So I don't, you know, I consider somebody who's had devices, who's having those symptoms, who's done the standard allopathic workup, and that's been negative, and they've been to, usually patients come to me after they've seen multiple specialists. Mm -hmm and integrative practitioners and not gotten resolution of their inflammation. So it's not a, I can tell you after I do an explant and send it off for PCR analysis, what's on it. And about a third of the time it has biofilm and that biofilm is usually cutie bacterium acnes, which is found in large concentrations. It's a bacteria found in large concentrations on your chest, face, shoulders, and neck. Gotcha. Interesting. So transfer would have happened during surgery or, or what's the, no, no idea. Just something that that's Most what landed. Commonly it would be hematogenous spread. So, okay. I mean, the, the three likely routes for the audience for somebody to get a contaminant, it would be at the time the device is handed to the surgeon, the surgeon putting in the device. And the third would be hematogenous. That's the most common, obviously. So if you got a cold, a urinary tract infection, a GI problem, and those bacteria get into your bloodstream, or somebody has a skin infection, or in this case, acne, gets picked, erupts, it gets into your bloodstream. I mean, this has gone on forever. That's why, um, you know, typically any patient having a mechanical valve or prosthetic placement of any variety, like a joint or anything, obviously you make sure their teeth are fine. You make sure they don't have an infection because if that becomes bloodborne, in or around the time of their procedure and it contaminates their device, then you've cost them quite a bit. That's a very difficult problem once that begins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely important. So I think, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about today, especially for the folks who, you know, are contemplating, do I have something going on? What do, you know, 
what kind of things do we want to consider pros and cons of an explant, things of that nature? What, what do you usually talk with folks about in that department when they're coming in and saying, Hey, you know, I've got these factors, maybe, you know, it's been identified that there is a low grade inflammation infection kind of thing. Maybe they've gone to the point where they've got autoimmune things happening. What, what's kind of the, the evaluation and discussion that you have in the office about pros and cons of explants? Well, usually the folks are really, I don't convince anybody really to do anything. Mm-hmm. You convinced themselves before they ever show up. They're very self-selected to this point. They've decided yeah. they don't want to have devices anymore. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a discussion of, you know, what fits them in their situation. Some people just want to have the explant done and they want to work with their practitioner and try to recover. And um, they're not really interested in anything else. Others will have interest in, you know, if they, for instance, had a wider breast or low set breast from uh, pregnancies and child uh, and breastfeeding, et cetera, then they'll want some kind of rejuvenative procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there'll be a group of folks who are just super concerned about, they've had ex- uh, implants for a very, very long time. And this is the aesthetic that they're used to. And if it changes abruptly, what's that going to be like for them? So, mm-hmm. We provide all levels of, you know, surgical service to help that, whether it's the explant alone or an explant where we do some sort of reshaping or lifting procedure. And then, of course, I do, and a lot of people come for fat transfers, which I do simultaneously a lot. But to get a fat transfer with us or pretty much any procedure with us, you run through our program. Um, I've done over uh, 1,800 Explants, but I have a specific program we put people through our heart program to help just level the playing field for them. We know it lowers inflammation to a certain degree, but actually to get all the, you know, if you want to get back to their baseline or whatever that new baseline is going to be for them, uh, we feel that uh, the device, if it's really acting as a big generator, has to be removed. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's talk about your program for a little bit, because I saw on your website, you've got a lot of different things in terms of binders and and clearing and glutathione and things of that nature. Is that something that is on the forefront of the program, helping folks to detox better, working on maybe genetic mutations within the liver cells? And then on the back end, after removing and, and the explant, I'm guessing you have a, a specific procedure as well that goes goes on. Yeah, the program, surgical program runs for a year around the time of your surgery. So we try to get people uh, started on a laboratory evaluation. So we have those genetic tests, uh, toxicity tests, food sensitivity, and uh, gut microbiome testing, as well as we'll look at hormones and uh, other traditional lab values. We got to get all that done up front to see like, what is your specific set of issues? So if you had a bad mold exposure, if you had heavy metals, if you have a bunch of glyphosates, phthalates, BPAs, whatever, we want to start working on that. Now, we don't want to react to what's going on after surgery. We want to be upfront and proactive with that. We're very clear on the genetic predisposition of this patient population. Many of them have problems with vitamin D. Uh, metabolism, uh, methylation, glutathione, and antioxidant pathways. So all of our 
supplements geared towards lowering inflammation. The majority of them are liposomal, so there's no uh, issue with gut absorption. And we know those work to help lower inflammation. We've got plenty of uh, uh, experience with that. We then set up somebody to work with our detox practitioner if, in fact, there's a bad uh, or series of bad findings on the toxicity test. And we do uh, almost a, a little preliminary phase one detox with CellCore, who we partner with, and then surgery. And then there's that you know, period of time after surgery. So I, I see folks the first week after surgery, a month, three, six, nine, and 12 months. But that's the surgical follow-up. The detox follow-up usually is running three and four month intervals concurrently to that. Wow. Wow. So definitely a lot heftier of a program than I have seen with other docs out there, because it seems that the, it kind of runs the gamut. And I'd love for you to kind of explain a couple of things, because I have had patients who have come into my office and have done kind of a little bit of detox beforehand, afterwards, explant surgery, then it's just, okay, now your body's going to return to baseline. So I'd love to kind of have you give a little I guess probably in what you've seen with those 1800 cases, the detox component, the, the follow-up and going through for a whole year. Cause a lot of folks might be thinking like, oh, wow, a whole year. This is, this is quite intense. Yeah. I mean, if you had pro, uh, a pair of, of implants, I mean, I guess on average, you know, I've got people with as, as short as a few years and I've got people into having implants for 30 or 40 years. So mm -hmm. if you've had something, we'll just consider a inflammatory process for many, many years, we're not going to solve it in a week or two weeks or two months or maybe even two years. Mm -hmm. It's it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. So depending on your genetics, depending on your already existing exposures, how you eat, drink, the air you breathe, it's going to dictate the large majority how you recover. So our, our program is set up to help you recover efficiently by acting preemptively on things that, you know, we already can identify and work on with you. And then post-operatively, it's more about, you know, maintaining a certain, you know, diet and then modifying the things you can control. You, everybody can control better their, their water and the food they eat. You know, the food in this situation is the thing along with supplementations that's going to help you heal. So, we already leverage the lymphatic system. I don't use drains during surgery anymore. Uh, we use hyperbaric oxygen in the office. We encourage folks to do both those things uh, on their on their own as well. Um, but you know, principally, you know, instructing them on diets, making sure that their diets helping them, not hurting them, and then letting them recover over time. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody's you know, short of those who are infected, they're going to recover at different intervals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. So there's a lot of different folks out there kind of sharing their stories on Instagram and social media. And, and there's definitely some myths around breast implant illness and, and really implants in general. I'd love for you to share like the most common things you hear, what you're working with um, in terms of helping dispel these kind of myths with patients when they come into the office. Yeah, I believe in the, in 24, we'll have our study out about biofilm. So, mm -hmm. you know, We'll have the largest experience with that. I think we have in that study, 943 consecutive samples, something of that nature. It's over 900 and it's 30% uh, is the rate of biofilm in that, in that study. And the 
or the incidence. And then the the bacteria, as I said, is key bacterium acnes. I think there's a lot of things that are kind of spewed on the internet about mold. Yeah. And moldy implants and this and that. And that's not the case. I have, I think, six instances of that out of 1,800. Interesting. That is that is something that I hear quite a bit from patients that they'll come in and say, hey, I had mold in my home. I swear my 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 implants have to have mold all around them. And then, of course, comes in a, a Instagram story or something of that nature. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you, honestly, it's not compatible with life to have a bunch of mold around your implant. That's not going to work. So so that's a myth. It's just it, it's not accurate. Um Beyond that, I mean, uh, the other fallacy is like, you know, people are magically going to be better right after the surgery in the recovery room. Everything's going to change and it's going to be this epiphany. I would say that's an unrealistic expectation to set. Um, many of these cases are not, um, they're not easy to do. They may have had multiple surgeries. The people may re be relatively uh, unwell to begin with. And so that's why we work with them up front. So I think it's a very unrealistic expectation that the place on a on a poor you know a patient who's not they're in a vulnerable situation to begin with, and then to make it appear as though this is just going to be the uh, change all of a sudden after after surgery. I mean, I have taken care of folks who've done and gotten better really quickly after surgery, and I I would love for everybody to do that, but I've done. Like I said, over 18, it's not the case in the majority of instances. Oh, I'm glad you're mentioning it that way because it, it, you know, as society is, we want the quick fix. And, you know, of course we would love for the breasts to come out, explant surgery done. And then all of a sudden you're, you're this new person, you drop a hundred pounds and, you know, you feel amazing. And unfortunately, you know, working with women, being a woman myself, you know, you, we, we want those things, especially with our body and shape and things of that nature. And so when it doesn't happen, I, I will see folks who will come in and say, yeah, I, I don't feel better, but I love the fact that you're explaining like, Hey, this is something that you had the illness before. Maybe you had the predispositions with genetics, things of that nature, even going into this. So it's, it's quite important for folks to really realize that as a whole. And, and that's why I was very interested in the fact that you have a year program because I, I don't see that um, quite as often with some of the folks that I've seen that have had explants and come into my office. It's, it's like surgery done and, you know. Well, surgery. I can't operate on everybody, obviously. So <laughs> sure. everybody can come to Austin. So people can run our program remote. So, you know, we feel like we can help more people uh, that way. I feel, you know, there's a lot of good surgeons. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to help take care of these uh, patients. And I obviously can't do them all. Um, but our our team is set up to work with folks and to help them and take advantage of what we know. And uh, next year, I'll have a book coming out just about the surgical program. Okay, nice, nice. I think that's really important for folks to hear, especially for those that have a little bit more going on heading into these things. So of course, one of the big questions I get from folks is with the genetic testing, you know, a lot of folks have done 23andMe and I, I usually explain that it's probably going to be depending on whoever you're seeing a more expanded DNA test. Right, right, are you right. using DNA company? Who, who are you using for the DNA testing just out of curiosity? Yeah, we currently, I've used, well, 
I had this discussion last night with a bunch of people, and I've been curious about genetics since I was in college, which seems a very long time ago now. But, um, you know, with the advances in computing and the completion of the genome project, now as they go back and look at it, you just learn more and more. And we do uh, have a strong relationship with the DNA company. Um, there's a new company, Envision Labs, that we're going to be uh, looking at. So we want to always provide you know, clients with the best uh, options genetically. And what everybody, you know, our goal is to try to really tailor the experience. So if I can understand better what your genetics are, you know, how, how do you metabolize something as simple as fats? Like you can really modify a diet. You know, for instance, somebody says the, a keto diet doesn't work. Well, of course a keto diet works. I mean, come on. The only thing that fails in a keto diet is when you start adding too much fat in the diet, if you can't metabolize fats, then you fail because your body can't handle that. So, I mean, ketones, like you'd be dead if ketones <laughs> work in your body. So, of course, a keto diet can work. It just depends really on your metabolism. So, when we look at genetics, we're trying to be more precise about how we tailor the experience for the patients, including their anesthetic experiences. So, in 24... In the new year, we're looking to really add more and more pharmacodynamic information to our plans so that we can help our anesthesia providers who are all great anyway, but they need as much information to make that part of the case more efficient and simple for the for our patients. That's neat that you're even thinking about that because in, you know this is something that I think a lot of folks wouldn't really think of as part of their process. And obviously detox of the anesthesia is just important of detox in general of environmental toxins and things of that nature. So that's that is that's fascinating to me as as a genetic geek going, oh wow, we're looking all the way into types of I'm I'm guessing types of anesthetics, how much, different types of protocols that they you might run in IVs while they're getting surgery too, or give us a little breakdown on on how that kind of looks just in general. Well, you want to know how certain folks will metabolize things like narcotics. Mm -hmm. So nobody really wants to take narcotics after surgery. Um, and we minimize that in our program by running what's called an ERAS or early recovery after surgery and or enhanced recovery after surgery. The program we run starts the night before with things to calm down the nervous system, reduce inflammation, reduce nausea, and runs for the first two weeks after the things with understanding more about, you know, not so much the inhalational agents that the anesthesia folks have to use, but then the drugs that they may need to give IV, how they're going to respond to those. And then afterwards, for our clarity, trying to work on what would be the best situation for them uh, from a, a, a narcotic standpoint or just anxiety standpoint, if they need things, what would work better for them. And certain, uh, like somebody has a P450 issue, they'll require a different type of plan versus somebody who doesn't. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And, and I think a lot of folks, maybe, you know, if they've gone down different rabbit holes of research online, they might have gathered some information, but as a majority, I think a lot of folks aren't thinking about these kind of things going into uh, a surgery. So one of the other questions I, I get, and I'd be curious, Dr. Rob, as to your thought process on this, I have some clients who have old implants who are now having some leaking. And they're, let's put it this way, we we did an ultrasound on one gal 
maybe a couple months ago and and it looked like her silicone was leaking out of of the implants and she went to a specialist specialist said you know they're leaking but you've had them this long it's probably not an issue i would love to hear kind of how you talk with folks about situations like this is is it po- more possible for a leaking implant to cause illness in someone L- give us a scoop on that so folks can understand a little bit better and the type of implant too silicone versus saline versus that situation well all the devices have the same shell silicone or saline so it's always a silicone shell if there's a device failure and a saline implant it goes flat so that's an obvious and they would show up with a uh, a change in the volume because it would have leaked and and that salt water that it should have been inside the device gets absorbed so that's an obvious one i mean uh, a silicone device that's failing or leaking needs to be removed whether it's a cancer patient or a cosmetic patient it's not appropriate to leave that in okay good to know good to know um is this anything that you use you come up against in terms of patients? How common is it for silicone or even saline implants to to leak that you see? Uh, I would say I don't see ruptures that routinely in implants placed after 2013 because of the the shell technology, but implants placed in the 80s and 90s, I do. Okay. Routinely, okay. yeah. Okay. And out of the patients that you've seen that have been maybe more severe or, or let's put it this way, more, yeah, more severe, let's go with that. Do you find any correlation to the older implants compared to the new, or it doesn't matter based on, you know, what they're coming in with and their, in their bodies kind of predispositions? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the complexity of the question belies the testing and what you find on them. They're all each going to be their own unique case. When you try to put all those together, it, it's that's a hard uh, one, you know, for us. I mean, we see folks who've worked, you know, they've probably seen a practitioner um, that's helped them from an inflammation standpoint, and I mean, an integrated practitioner. So they've already probably at that point tried to do some things outside of the box. So it's, you know, kind of that question's not a fair fight for me anymore because the patients I see are so selectively biased towards you know coming to me sure sure yeah i could see that i could see that i'm just kind of thinking of some of the questions i've had in my office before and different things that folks are asking me one of the other things that i get asked a lot is is it common when you have breast implant illness to also have be be more predisposed to breast cancer and cancers in in particular Oh, I, I mean, that's a good question. I've had uh, two instances of breast cancer and one instance of a lymphoma in all those cases. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be people who go on to have breast cancer because it's such a prevalent condition. But our body has this surveillance system with the NK cells that helps reduce our susceptibility to cancer. And then breast cancer's obviously got a lot of hormonal influence. So estrogen toxicity plays a big role. So once again, going back to your genetics, if you're someone who detoxes poorly, if you're someone who has estrogen toxicity, you're obviously going to be more predisposed to that. If you had a family history of it, you're even more predisposed to that. So those play more of a role in it, you know, to me than a device-related situation. Okay. Okay. 
So, you know, kind of one of the other things that that happens within the alternative medicine industry and also within uh, the let's put it this way, maybe social media as a whole is as folks are really blaming the devices when in fact, it does sound like maybe if we should be if we're, if we're considering putting in a breast implant, we maybe should be thinking proactively about what are our genetics, what, you know, kind of detox mechanisms do we have that kind of stuff before we actually consider a breast implant instead of folks going, oh, it's all the implants, not, you know, the actual human in that sure. case. Yeah, I get asked all the time, you know, people try to pigeonhole me on shows and in conversations, would I let my wife get breast implants or would I let my daughter get a breast implant? And so the the discussion is more of, because I understand the genetics behind it, I know how someone can detox, you you would want to know that, mm -hmm. want to know their metabolism of their sex hormones, you know, that would help you understand estrogen toxicity better. And then, uh, so my daughter's a Leo like me. So uh, despite me being able to explain anything in a, in a practical manner, somebody's going to still make their own decisions. You just want them to make an informed decision. So it's not about that. It's it's just like explaining it properly and let people are going to decide. You're not going to tell my, you know, daughter what to do when she's, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, whatever. They're going to do what they want to do regardless. They've already probably in their head decided what they want to do and the timing of it becomes the issue only. You know, mm -hmm. I can explain all the information given, you know, my experience and try to help make a better, a better more shared decision, but they're still going to make their own decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's just something that, you know, awareness and and being aware now that we have the information going in that folks can can take the information should they choose. I think one of the places in which I would look at this as to post breast cancer, maybe a total mastectomy and someone's like, okay, I don't want to be flat going forward. Say they're 30 years old, early breast cancer, and they're going, okay, what do I do next? That would be one of the things that in, in my mind, I would think, you know, could that be something you know, that's relevant. Well, sure. Yeah. And that was my niche for a long period of time from uh, 05 to 19. I predominantly took care of breast cancer patients and I performed a procedure called the DIEP free flap, which was a muscle sparing, nerve sparing procedure to take the lower abdominal tissue and use that instead of discarding like in a tummy tug, use that to create a breast mount. And so that's also how I took care of patients who are had implant-based reconstructions who had infections or radiation injuries or or needed to get out of that reconstructive technique for whatever reason because mm -hmm. it was using your own tissue which is your your own genetic material it's not going to be rejected you just have to have a high success rate which we did it was well above 95 percent in our group and that was a great option but of course you have to have you know enough lower abdominal tissue to do that and in some people who are lower body weight and need uh, a bilateral uh, reconstruction, that became a more challenging problem, but can still be done. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. I mean, stuff I know nothing about, not in, you know, not in my wheelhouse, but definitely fascinating things and questions that I get in my practice as a whole. So, you know, I think at this point, folks are probably like, okay, cool. You know, there, there's a program, we've got that kind of stuff going on. It looks, you know, incredibly from what I've seen online, incredibly comprehensive, which I love. 
And, and I think that's fascinating. A lot of folks will ask me, Dr. Rob, you know, who, who do I know? Who have I talked to with things of that nature? And, and as far as I know, I haven't seen as comprehensive of, of a program as what you have going on. I guess my, my next thing to round out the podcast here, it would be if someone is contemplating explant, they, they kind of know they want to do one. They're looking for the right fit of a doc. What kind of things would you recommend that they look into? What kind of questions should they be asking? Things of that nature. Well, we put together an FAQ on the on my show, Breast Implant Illness, just to answer a bunch of these so people can just sit back and, and take in the things that they should know. So when they go to communicate about, you know, surgery, like what, what should be looking for. So somebody who actually does them, you know, fairly routinely. You don't want to have somebody who does one a month. I mean, I do eight or 10 a week. So repetitions and experience obviously are always important. Um, it's not that you have to have a cancer background. You're a little bit more familiar with what you're dealing with when you're doing these removals and taking out all the scar tissue, if in fact you did that. So like I said, when I we used, we used to take these out and convert them from a breast reconstruction to a uh, a tissue reconstruction, we would take all of that material out. So just like when the patient uh, I took uh, care of initially in 2016, I told you about, it wasn't very difficult for me to do all that because I'd done all that before. So it's not a new thing. Mm -hmm. Even in the cosmetic situations, there are some you know different nuances and techniques, but they're all safe. The procedure is safe. It's not going to, you're not going to puncture the lung and you're not going to do all these things that people are are worried about. So, you know, uh, injury for somebody you're not going to injure the lung at all. Um, you're going to, if you did anything, the scar can make a little uh, uh, hole in the outside lining, which is the outside is not the lung itself. And it, it lets air in and that won't prevent the lung from expanding. But if you get the air out and then close that, it's not going to cause the patient any harm. It's just recognizing that. Um, that should be less than, you know, a handful per thousand and you can have obviously bleeding. That's the number one thing with any surgery is, is a problem with bleeding. So those things tend to take people back to operating rooms. That once again, that should be a handful out of a thousand. Um, there really shouldn't be problems with infections at any given rate, you know, maybe 1%. Mine's far lower than that. I don't use drain tubes, which helps. Um, I think, you know, having just enough experience to have a good discussion. The, the provider in my position should understand the concept of what the patient's describing and not um, belittle it or gaslight it or not recognize it. And if you know, you know, if you're not comfortable with that provider when speaking to them about it, then that's not the right provider. Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously you have your podcast, which I'd love for you to speak about with folks so that folks can can understand, you know, you've got the breast implant illness podcast where you're talking all things breast implant illness and, and that gives a lot more resources as well. And that can be found, I'm guessing, anywhere you find podcasts. Yeah, it's on Apple and Spotify, breast implant illness with Dr. Robert Whitfield. You just type in my full name, all the shows I've been on will pop up and then my show will pop up that just discusses breast implant illness and then at breastimplantillnessexpert.com. I'm sorry, at breastimplantillnessexpert. And then we have the same URL so you can go there and get information, I believe. 
everything's um, as descriptive there as well and links to help. Awesome. Awesome. You know, it's it's great stuff. I'm glad that you're bringing light to this, talking about it with the podcast as well, because there are folks asking at least every week in my office about their breasts, what's going on, and could there be some illness involved? So big, big stuff going on with that. I, I sincerely appreciate the work that you're doing and look forward to putting this podcast out to share more information with folks. Thank you. Hey, fellow health junkie. Thanks for listening to the Health Fix podcast. If you enjoyed tuning in, please help support me to get the word out about the podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review, and just get that word out. Thanks again for listening.